You're listening to The Fully Occupied Show, presented by Occupier. Hey everyone, Matt from Occupier here. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to another episode of the Fully Occupied Podcast. If you enjoy the show, make sure you subscribe on your favorite listening platform or just shoot us a note at marketing at occupier.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on future guests, topics you'd like to hear about, ask us any questions you have, or just say hi. Enjoy the show. Navin, welcome to the Fully Occupied Show. Thanks for joining us. Matt, thanks for having me on. It's been good to get to know you over a couple of years and watch the success of Occupier, so it's fun to be a part of your podcast now. Yeah, man. I'm glad you uh, agreed to be a guest. I think we've got a lot of stuff to talk about here. I think retail is kind of having its moment right now. Um, but before we dive into the conversation, why don't you introduce yourself for, for the audience? Sure, man. And if I didn't say it before, I think I did. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Navin. I have been in retail real estate for about a decade. Uh, my mom is still very disappointed that I'm not a doctor. I was a tax attorney in my past life um, <laughs> and really hated trying to help uh, banks and hedge funds save money on credit default swaps and interest rate swaps and uh, had always been curious about real estate. Lived in New York back in uh, 2008 to 2018, and so 2012 is when I made the switch into real estate, started in residential. Great place to learn. I've always wanted to be on the development side. I will be on the development side at some point, developing for myself, but it was amazing to see like new residential projects in Manhattan and like the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars that poured into it. The downside of residential brokerage was evenings, weekends, and emotions, which I wanted nothing to do with in terms of my paycheck. Uh, I had a family friend who owned a school and a buddy who owned a coffee shop. And both of them were like, hey, you know, why don't you try to help us? And I told them I know nothing, but I'm sure I can try to learn it. I got a taste of it and was like, wow, this is definitely where I need to be. This is strictly based on, uh, well, two things, really, understanding numbers and understanding consumer psychology. And both of those things are fascinating, fascinating to me. I've never done landlord work, uh, but placemaking certainly seems very interesting. Um, and so fast forward from 2013, when I really got uh, a taste of brokerage to now, um, I went right from that residential firm to a national tenant rep firm and was lucky enough to prove myself quickly and get handed the dry bar account when they had 30 locations. And I did their work nationally as a broker, amazing way to learn the entire country and uh, got a taste of success in that role and realized, hey, you know what would make me better at this job would be to go in-house as a principal somewhere. And I wasn't married to being on the tenant side. I was open to being on the landlord side. I was curious to see how they are thinking about deals from their side of the table, uh, but was lucky enough that I kept eating at a restaurant at the time. It was called Dig In. It's now called Dig. Um, I kept eating at this restaurant and was like, wow, this is a great product. And back yeah. in 2015, it was fitness and F and B that was uh, leasing space. And so reached out to the brand. They happened to be hiring for a director of real estate. I took on the job from the CEO who's still the founder and CEO um, and learned an amazing deal, uh, an amazing amount of real estate um, knowledge, I should say. I, I gained a lot of real estate knowledge from working there because the founder was a real estate private equity guy prior to that. And the way that he underwrites deals underwrote deals then and does today. I'm their master broker nationally for DIG. 
um, is heavily on the numbers and very analytical. And so it was just a great exposure to a lot of different ways to think about deals. Did that for three years, loved it, and in 2018 left, joined a company called Locate uh, to launch the brokerage services arm of their business. It was a software as a SaaS company exclusively at the time back in 2018. So you, the retailer, would pay three to $5,000 a month for access to a cloud-based mapping platform with a bunch of different data sets. Um, and my job was to take that and package that into more of a brokerage offering um, and look to generate additional revenue outside of just software as a service um, on both retained uh, retainers and commissions. And now it's been several years. I do the work for Allbirds in a number of markets, for Berries in a number of markets, uh, for Dig nationally, for Juno Medical nationally out of New York, and then a number of other brands. Um, and it's been great. I exclusively work as a national master broker. Uh, for these brands. And it's just a very exciting role for me because it kind of does the best of both sides. As a broker, you know, I, I get the, the flexibility to work on the accounts I do and don't want to work on. I get to travel to uh, much less so today to um, other markets and really learn their their areas. But being a strategic partner, rolling out a brand nationally or in several markets, it's just is much more rewarding to wait to me because I'm really in the weeds on on how we're strategizing and growing. So uh, that's a good good summary of where we are today. Yeah, wow. I mean, it goes all the way back to you know doing residential in Manhattan and seeing kind of the shift and trying to help a cousin open a restaurant or something like that. You know, totally opens your eyes to like a different a different uh, part of the real estate space. But now you've got ten years under your belt. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we've had a bunch of episodes on this podcast where we've talked about the effects of the pandemic. So we're going to skip over that part sure. because that's at least two two plus years old, and I think everybody is. You know, tired of hearing that theme. That's but, right. Yeah, what I want to know right now is like, what is happening like right now in the retail space, specifically in kind of like the types of customers that you do business with? Because at Occupier, we track all of the data that's getting pumped into our system from a transaction perspective. And just this year alone, you know, almost halfway through the year, we've seen a 13% uptick in retail transactions happening on our platform. So, you know, that tells us that there's health behind you know, this downturn that we experienced and it's actually, it's actually booming. Um, but you know, we'd love your on the ground perspective of it. Yeah. I mean, we can fast forward 20 to 22, I think with some very brief summary, there was a period of a few months where everything went to a screeching halt. And obviously that was worrisome for everyone. When so many different brands yeah. sat on their cash, um, or their investors cash for a long period of time, it was only a matter of when they'd start deploying because no one is parking their money with a brand to say, hey, you sit on it and earn on it. The, the investors want to see it deployed and they want to see a return. Mm -hmm. And so speaking for me personally, and then I'll talk uh, a little bit broader, I had a career high year last year and this year through what will be the end of the second quarter, it'll be the best two quarters of my career. Um, it seems like folks have just really needed to deploy capital and the best way to do it was to really focus their real estate efforts from Arizona to Florida, just go straight across and down. And it was really Arizona, Texas, Georgia, Florida that had a lot of uh, deal making. Um, and then I think to some degree, direct to consumer brands have started, it feels like have started to lean into opening retail. So you'll see, you know, I, I do the work for Allbirds and I'm not going to speak about Allbirds, obviously, uh, specifically, but we run into the same brands, um, Yeti, Viore, and that ilk as we go to all these different projects across the country. And so 
while they have been very active, there's clearly uh, outside forces here with the market that I'm paying attention to now. I, I do think direct-to-consumer brands are going to slow down some of their growth just because we can say that valuations don't matter. But if your company valuation is halved, uh, you're, you're going to pause and maybe assess what's happening. Right. Uh, so I think if you talk about the market more generally, there are going to be certain brands that are, are going to probably continue to grow and expand, um, like the small box, you know, like the city targets, the dollar stores, the dollar generals. Um, car washes obviously had, had crushed for a long period of time. I don't know what is too many, but I've seen some funny images of like five car washes on like one stretch of road. I, I think that if I have to answer, uh, answer your question a little more concisely, I, I think what you've seen for the last six quarters uh, so 21 into now and probably one more quarter is a really rapid deployment of capital. But I do think in the latter half of this year um, and going into Q1 of next year, I personally will see a slowdown on my deal making side just based on what I'm looking at. And I think the broader market will probably feel that. I think brands like Juno uh, Medical, not to talk about Juno Medical specifically, but medical retail is certainly in a good spot now. I think landlords feel like that is COVID proof and recession proof and for good reason they are. Um, and so I think brokers that are ahead of it and brands that are ahead of it are really going to align with those sorts of um, entities and industries so they can uh, be successful for the next 18 to 24 months. Yeah, that um, intersection of uh, medical use and retail is, is fascinating to me. We had a we had a webinar recently where we had a, a healthcare practice leader uh, from JLL in Texas uh, that you know coined the term for us like medtail, right? Yep. It's like the typical medical office building in the suburbs that used to house all the doctor's offices and dentist's offices. Now it's getting spread out into the community, right? So it's going into, you know, strip centers, open air centers. It's going into, you know, high street level retail. That to me seems like it's something to your point, like could kind of like help the industry kind of survive through the next like two years when we don't really know exactly like the long-term effect of like what a potential downturn here might have on retail. So yeah, we're definitely seeing that trend as well. We have some Medtail customers of ourselves, um, but we had Adam Ifshin on from DLC Management a couple episodes ago, and mm. he was, you know, to his obviously biased because he owns retail real estate, but yeah. you, know, you know, he was pretty adamant that any anybody selling anything, the store is the best place to do that. Now, obviously, some companies are pure DTC, but how do you think about? I mean, you just rattled off all these amazing brands that you represent. Um, how do they think about like their brand identity and creating an experience in their in their in their brick and mortar versus purely just looking at the spreadsheet? Well, it's interesting. We're in an interesting phase in the sense that I think there is a clear path. A bunch of retailers have seen direct consumer brands from online go to brick and mortar, whether these brands will be successful or not in really uh, expanding their their profits and their growth by, by opening brick and mortars is yet to be seen. But I think we can at least say from a client standpoint, from a customer standpoint, I have a better experience when I can order stuff at Target and then drive up to the Target that's three minutes from my house and press I'm here and they bring it to my car in 90 seconds versus waiting for something to ship two, three, five days from now. That's just not practical. And I I will say, to go on a tangent for a second, and it'll come back to what you were asking, companies that have done that, I think, are, are going to continue to thrive. So Whole Foods curbside pickup, Total Wine and Spirits curbside pickup, uh, which I would just use for my, my kid's second birthday, Target curbside pickup, those sorts of things. Once I've done it once or twice, I mean, it's like a 
I would pay premium for the product you're selling to go in there. And so the experience you're building, while it's not a physical space to differentiate, you're just, I'm, I'm, I'm out clearly going to outspend at your facility than I am at other brands. And that means the customer experience is better. So now let's go inside the four walls. In the past, Tesla was the only dealership that was selling direct to consumer. Did that work or not? I don't know. I guess we'll see. But it feels like more and more brands are taking ownership of their product and then bringing it to the customer. And when you're doing that, you start to care about the things that maybe the department store didn't care about your experience. And so take that to the same MedTail example you gave. Sure, we can all open a medical office in a boring medical office building and it's it's not a pleasant experience you don't look ahead to it you don't think about convenience typically when you go to a mom and pop doctor shop um but all of a sudden you bring them into street retail and these med tail and i was at that uh, i attended that webinar i thought it was great uh, but you start to do that sort of thing one you're activating space in a different way so retail landlords are excited to have these medical retailers in there but it's the perfect example of you don't need to build a really aesthetically pleasing office with great light fixtures and a nice waiting room and a good customer service experience where you can walk up to the fridge and grab what, you know whatever beverages you need to get. But it does change the way you feel about that doctor's office. You're a Yeti. I, I never would have bought Yeti products in the past. Um, I've seen their stores in certain places and locate had given us these Yeti mugs. And I was like, wow, this is a solid product. Like I, I would enjoy this. And I've gone in the stores and been like, you can basically sell me this stuff now that I know the product experience is really strong. And then you give me this experience when I come in, it doesn't feel like I'm at the, uh, the coolers aisle at Dick's Sporting Goods. Like it's just a totally different experience. And I think every retailer that's really trying to to be here for a long period of time and not just bang out five years of profits before exiting, I think they're all very focused on not to the spreadsheet and building a really great experience. In the past, that was limited to really experiential brands. Sweetgreen had Sweet Life. You know, Berries has a cult following. Soul Cycle had a cult following. Everyone's wearing the t-shirts and the shorts and what have you. I think you're going to see a lot of different brands lean into that because it's less to really have success on the spreadsheet. I think you need to be physically uh, enjoyed when you're at the store. And then also your online experience can't be lousy. I think it all ties together. Yeah, so it's what omnichannel. You have to have the same feelings from the website, from ordering on their app, from picking up at their store, from going in the store. It's like I really love this brand. Like I'm, I, I'm not gonna buy a cooler anywhere else. Like this is where this is where I go. I'm, yeah. I'm the same way. I think I got a, a Yeti gift once, and I was like, well, this is awesome. Yeah. And now it's like all my coolers are Yeti coolers. But I've never been in one of their stores, and I'm sure if I walk by one, I would be like, oh, I'm gonna go check. Something. What, what Yeti has new and like just look around the store. Yeah. So like they get you hooked Yeah. Um, it, before uh, you even walk in the door. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, they, they do um, have you hooked. And I think it's going to be really fascinating mm-hmm. to see um, which brands realize that their product probably doesn't need a physical space and uh, which products do. And so I think Yeti – having a physical space to show their wares is interesting. If you think they're a high quality product, you're like, oh wow, I didn't think about, a th- I never thought about a coffee cup for it. I just have like the big tall mug, but I'm like, oh, coffee cup's actually kind of nice. I can keep my coffee hot four hours in the morning. Um, Lisa mattresses, and we've seen Casper, what happened with that. And uh, you know, I, we have, my wife and I purchased a Lisa mattress. It's amazing. It's a, a perfect mattress. 
I'm never going to go in a mattress store and roll around because it's an impractical experience. Like I'm not going to spend six hours in there. The only way I'm going to test this thing is if you send it to my house and give me a hundred days to try it out and send it back to you. And if you need to charge me a larger margin to cover the percentage of people that are returning it, do that. That's cheaper for you than opening a physical brick and mortar store in a premium retail or in Northern Virginia where I am or in Southern California or in Cherry Creek. Like you just don't need to do that for some of these brands. Um, and in those cases, I think you're probably better wholesaling, which I think a lot of D2C brands are doing now because they're like, you know what, maybe I don't need to have my own space everywhere. I can have a couple of flagship locations where people can come in and feel the vibe and understand the brand. The rest of the people will experience it online and they'll experience a better customer service product, a, a better customer product in the sense that the product is shipped to them. I don't know if you've ever tried commentier coffee, but I am a bit of a coffee snob. I had a fancy espresso maker prior to the pandemic and a friend of mine mentioned commentier coffee. And it's this capsule coffee and you just melt the pot and pour it into your oat milk or you add ice to it and you've got your iced coffee. To me, I'm like, I, this can't be very good. Well, aside from the fact that the actual coffee is really good, I was blown away at like how they're actually packaging and shipping this product to you. And I wonder if some element of how they decided on packaging and sending this product had to do with getting over the fact that people are going to think hey, these little capsules are probably cheap. Like they're just not going to be tasty. And I think it's like $2 a capsule, but they package it with like beautiful individual boxes of six to eight pods. And then they wrap their dry ice in another like cardboard box that has a handle. So you're really just not touching anything. It's perfectly insulated. It may not matter to a lot of folks, but to me, that sort of professional experience made a huge difference. They don't need a brick and mortar store, but the experience I had with them means I will go through it again just because it's it's such a pleasant thing to receive. And I've gifted it to so many people now, three or four people, because it's packaged so well that I'm like, no one is going to receive this and be like, oh, you bought me capsule coffee. Like, this is terrible. No, yeah. they love it. It's great. And it's a great product, obviously. Yeah. So even though they're never going to go brick and mortar, it's the experience that you have with that brand that's going to bring you back. Um, yeah, that's right. Talk, talk a little bit about um, food and beverage, because you mentioned Dig. And yeah. I go there at least once a week for lunch. Great. Um the one here in Copley Square. I agree with you. When it was still called Dig In and I discovered it, I went in there. I was like, why isn't every other restaurant like this? This is yeah. amazing. Like, yep. I could see them making the food. It's healthy. You know exactly how to read this menu. And you have a ton of options. And they get you in and out in like a minute. Yeah. And, you know, it's similar to Sweet Green, right? But it's uh -huh. like, how do food and beverage companies think about that connection to the consumer? I mean, obviously they're selling a product that people taste and they enjoy and they come back to, but you know, what sets a dig apart from, I don't know, like a Chipotle that's, you know, right next door. I think we're kind of in an interesting time period uh, for F and B. So let's rewind just a couple years. Sweet green was, and is the elephant in the room, right? And they, back in 2018, 2019, were pushing 30, 40, 50% ordering via the app. I can't help but think they like intentionally slow down their line to make people use the app. I, that is like my, my conspiracy theory about Sweetgreen. But yeah. to their credit, they've done a great job. And I, there's a Sweetgreen, a three and a half minute walk to my place. And at least twice a week, if not three times a week, me, my wife, and my kid, who's you know just turned two years old, are ordering a Sweetgreen, 
for pickup or for delivery because even though it's right there, sometimes we're lazy. But otherwise, I'm running over there picking it up, and the and it's a great experience. The first thing when I open the door are the pickup shelves, and the names are printed big and bold, and like I, I don't have to waste any time. It's almost always in the exact same spot. And so take what Sweetgreen did a few years ago. I think what you're seeing right now is every brand is trying to figure out a couple different things. One, what does my customer want? Do they want to sit in here and enjoy my food? Is this bar taco where I'm going to have a couple beverages and I'm going to eat these tacos and it's not going to package very well? Or maybe, you know, I actually think they do nice packaging. But if you know their customer is going to come in, you've got to take a larger space. You've got to make the space feel right. You can't have a bunch of very low ceilings. You can't have weird pinch points. Like when you enter in, you don't want to go down a narrow hallway into a big room. You want to feel like you've arrived in a nice place. Well, actually, that's a that's a perfect example. Bar Taco did the QR codes in the center of the table. Not everybody loves it, but like I love it. I go over there. I do it now. I walk over there, sit on an outside table on a beautiful day, order my food. I'm in and out in 15 minutes. I've had my tacos. I paid my bill. I had to talk to nobody. To me, that's great. To some people, that's not. But again, you got to find out what your customer wants. I don't really need to sit um, in a dig, right? I don't need to sit yeah. in a Chipotle. I may at certain times of day, I'm more likely to eat dig for dinner than I am for Chipotle. If I'm eating dig for dinner, I'm much more likely to sit in there. And I love that dig had real silverware and real bowls, um, at some of these locations. Cause it makes it feel like, wow, for 12 or 13 bucks, I'm having this great meal. But I think yeah. to answer your question, it's just such a unique time because all these different F and B brands have to answer the question of who is my customer? How often do they actually want to spend time in here? And how much of my product is tied to convenience? Like if I if you can't order ahead at Starbucks, do you go to Starbucks or do you just skip it because you're like, I'll just wait till I get to the next one? I don't. I'm not I don't go into Starbucks anymore and order. I order on the app, I pick it up at the counter, and I'm out. My whole thing is convenience. I if I can't double park and go inside and get my food and get out, I'm probably not coming to your restaurant. And so I, I don't know if I can answer your question fully right now, but I do think F&B brands have a lot of different variables they have to, to, to play with right now. And the wild card here is most of them have to lean into the suburbs and, and urban residential markets because that's where the business is, at least for the foreseeable future. And you have downside protection in the sense that people are not going to leave these areas forever. Whereas on the business district side, uh, there's still a chance that you are going to see a big drop or a big increase in occupancies. And that might shift uh, what your spreadsheet looks like as we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Well, that, that's an interesting segue into my last question, which is a little bit more about kind of locate, like how you guys use data to help your uh, customers drive decisions. So that's a very prime example. I'm looking at the skyline of Boston right now. And when I go down to the financial district, it's kind of like, yeah, people are kind of still going back to the office, but the retail presence is like, like a ghost town, like where I used to eat lunch, like nothing's reopened. Um, you know, yeah. obviously your staples, like your Dunkins and stuff like that. But then you come into a different neighborhood in Boston where it's much more residential. It's vibrant, like back Bay, for example, and yep. there's still new restaurants, new quick service concepts opening all the time. Um, yeah. so you don't need to fly to a market, walk the city to figure out what neighborhood to put people in. So like, how do you guys help advise your, like your clients on, on where to locate? Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, it's a very valid question. Um, COVID certainly has changed consumer uh, behavior patterns and travel patterns. Um, and so I think more than ever looking at cell phone data is really important to make sure that you're getting into the right places. I think where you see people falling short is they're not going the second step in that process. Just knowing there's a bunch of cell phones or X number of cell phones came from home versus work. 
um, doesn't answer a key question for you, which is, are these customers around at the peak times of your business? Um, I work with an, an organic juice concept. It's the only franchise brand I work with, Clean Juice. I should have mentioned them earlier. And that brand does a heavy volume, as you might expect, in the morning hours and through lunch. Not that much dinner in the juice space. So if you're going around and your broker or your advisor is saying, hey, this shopping center crushes it, and you go there and you visit at five o'clock on a Tuesday and every space is jammed and you can't find you, you can't find a table to eat at or you can't find something to grab, well, that's great. It means it's a great center at five o'clock for whatever customer is there. You need to know that your customer is there at your peak time. So I think the best way to answer the question or, or to address the concern that you have if Matt was opening stores would be, hey, who is your customer? Where do they shop today? Can we learn something about that customer by looking at the cell phone device or the type of user that's going to these other brands. Okay, once we do that, how do we find the highest concentration of the folks that are likely to be Matt's customer at the time when they're likely to make a purchase? So go to the juice example, go to your coffee example. You're looking for a place that's busy, daily needs like in the morning, you know, and not, not the place that's jamming at night. Um, I think the second factor on how, how do you find sites, how do you use data, is that you don't forget that like no machine or data set is going to solve all these problems for us. You actually need to have some understanding of consumer psychology when you're picking these spaces. So pay a lot of attention to the most trafficked road around there and how they're actually coming into the center, how they're getting out of the center. Because if you don't make sure you have a lot of uh, easy access and grab and go parking spots for the folks like myself. And it sounds like you, Matt, where you're ordering online and grabbing up, uh, grabbing your stuff and going the less of stuff that you have like that easy parking to grab and go, the more likely that the data will deceive you because you're relying on one input as your dispositive data point. And, and I don't think that's actually the case. And I think with consumer behaviors changing, we talked about how F and B is changing uh, because no one knows the exact formula yet. I think it'd be very risky to, to put all your eggs in kind of one decision-making basket. Yeah. So boiling that down, it still takes some common sense and some understanding of the physical location uh, to make these decisions rather than just relying on a data set or some, like you said, machine to kind of pinpoint on a map where you should put this thing. I mean, a lot of it just comes down to logic, the, the whole idea yeah. of, uh, you know, when, when are my consumers going to buy my goods? That's that's right. Makes total sense. Okay, cool. Um, this has been before you jump to the, uh, before you jump to the next yeah. thing, sorry, the, I think the one that you just made a good point I want to touch on. Um, when I was at Dig, um, and even when I was doing Drybar's work nationally, there was a lot of questions about how master brokers can really be effective, and are they just like a network of brokers and nothing else? And it's fascinating yeah. to have have really leaned into that. I mean, at Locate, all we're doing generally at this point is master brokers nationally or regionally, depending on the clients and the other brokers in my office. I think there's 12 or 13 now. Um, there's a reason we all try to find the best local broker in every market, because it doesn't matter how much data we have. Uh, we have three Stanford data science grads that founded the company. We still need Bob the broker in Oak Brook, Illinois to tell us, hey, these are the these are the places you want to be. These are the places you don't want to be. By the way, that one space has been vacated four times in 10 years. Like if you don't know that yeah. stuff, you're done. And so it's really critical that you work with a good broker and someone who really knows the market as you look at this data. Don't try to make your decisions in a, in a you know, closed box, let's say. 
Yeah, I'm always fascinated when, you know, there's like always that like corner or that street or block or whatever that turns over like every year there's a new restaurant in it. Yeah. Like who keeps, who keeps making the decision to go back there? <laughs> yeah. Like, yep. It's so, I don't know. Um, somebody's, somebody's trying to make something work, but, um, yeah, that's right. All right. So you've got a pretty deep breadth of experience from the actual end user side, the broker side, just the consumer side, obviously. So appreciate all your insights on, on, on the retail we'll see, the space. We'll see where it goes. Um, yeah. we'll see, we've pulled you to your prediction of like the next, like call it six months or so and, and see if there's a, a slowdown, but. Uh, you know, let's hope it's not the, the apocalypse that everybody uh, thinks it's going to be. Yeah, that's right. I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> let's jump into the uh, rapid fire questions here. Now it's time for you to bare your soul. We, uh, <laughs> we're going to kick it off with one, which I think you already may have answered because, you know, you, you mentioned your love for coffee and you mentioned your family a couple of times, but when you're not working, how do you spend your time? Um, I am mostly playing with my kid, and I have an 80-pound uh, lab pit mix that I like to play tackle with. Um, if I had my choice, I'd find a way to play a little bit more um, poker. I used to play a lot of poker. I don't get enough time to do it now, and COVID obviously eliminated me playing in, in like MGM down here. But I love I love making decisions with incomplete information, uh, and so that would be a fun fun thing to be doing more of. I've got to introduce you to Dave Cairns, our um, other uh, recent podcast guest. He was a pro poker player for a while, so he's probably got oh, some nice. tips for you. That's great. I was never pro. I would take any tips. <laughs> Question two. Uh, what do you think was the most useful subject in school? Um, undergrad, finance. Um, grad school, I, I, I had an MBA when I was in law school, but it's funny. People are always like, oh, you're not an attorney, and... I would go to law school over in a second. I mean, it changes how you read and think about things and write things down. I think that's super valuable. And the finance part, if you're just talking about undergrad, uh, it just affects your life in every single way. Uh, it affects business in every single way. I, it's just useful for you to have an understanding of the basic concepts of finance. Fair enough. If you could instantly become an expert in something, what would it be? Artificial intelligence. Why, why is that? Uh, I think it's going to dominate um, a number of different industries and job types, and it would be nice to get ahead of it. If I really knew what was going on, I think that would be the space to lean into, into you know, negotiating LOIs and having conversations with lawyers to get rid of having to send back you know a 100-page document where everyone's just messing with the minutia. And you're like, listen, we can get to like 99% agreement. We're playing in the 1% when we're trying to solve for some of the stuff that's in the lease. Uh, it'd be nice to use artificial intelligence to kind of eliminate all those uh, wasted wasted uh, times. Yeah, I agree with you on, on that. Hopefully we all converge on that at some point yeah. in the future here. That's right. Um, who's your favorite superhero? My friends all tease me that I don't watch enough superhero movies, uh, but the ones I've probably watched the most of are Batman. And so I'll just go with Batman because you know, he's kind of a gangster. Yeah, you can't go wrong with Batman. Nah, you good choice. Issues. Sure, we all do. It's fine. <laughs> um, okay, last uh, last one. Uh, you have two-week vacation. How do you spend it? Uh, two-week vacation for my 40th birthday uh, just a few months ago. Um, it was the first time we took our then one-and-a-half-year-old on an airplane because of COVID. We hadn't done that, and we went to Puerto Rico 
And I was worried. I should say I was anxious about the flight because he'd never been on a plane. And I was like, man, he could melt down the whole time at the beach and just ruin this whole thing. So we'll just see what we can do. Perfect 80 degree weather. He would sit, you know, with his little bucket in the sand, the umbrella would get set up for him. And he's just sitting there playing for three hours. And I'm having, you know, beers at 11am, which he calls daddy's juice, which I always enjoy. And I would (laughs) unquestionably uh, go to the beach for two weeks because he can just play with the sand and I can just be outside and enjoy the nice weather. Um, I would like to take the dog again, but we're also having our second kid in five weeks. So it's going to be uh, tough to, to run out to for two weeks to the beach, I would expect for a short period of time, at least. Yeah. You got to fit it in somehow. Though. Well, congratulations. That's, that's all good. Yes. Very exciting times. Perfect time for the entire economy to slow down. Yeah. Perfect time to get more retail. Deals done. <laughs> um, all right. Finally, who, who are two people you think we should have on a show that uh, you haven't heard on it yet? Oh, uh, that is a good question. Two people that I would have on the show. Um, it would be awesome to get one of the Waltons from Walmart to speak on it. That brand has changed massively over time, uh, both the way they work with their employees and with their customers. So I'd, I'd be curious just based on the volume of transactions they have globally to hear what they have to say. No pressure if you can get one of them. And I think the other person, hmm, I, I don't remember the guy's name or, or woman's name for that matter. I don't remember who it is, but whoever, I think it's HEB that uh, allows the employees to have equity in the locations, if I'm not mistaken, or in the store. And so it would be fascinating to see if that's a, I would love to learn about that business model and, uh, if they actually take other people's input on real estate too, from their employees, I wonder if they like get any sort of consensus going from folks like, Hey, this is where we need to be or not be. Uh, But more, more so I'm just curious to have people hear that business model because I think it'd be great uh, for more and more brands to embrace it. I think employees are happier and interact with customers in a, in a different way if they are personally invested in the success of that location. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, Navin, thanks, man. This has been awesome. Thanks for your time and, and the insights. Let's check back in in a, in a few months and figure out where we are in the retail world. Well, we appreciate uh, you joining the show. Thanks, Matt. Retail is not dead, even if there's a slowdown. Uh, the long-term health of retail is in a great place because brands are going to figure out the best way to optimize online and, and brick and mortar. So I think it's great for the customer, and I look forward to seeing it. But we'll talk back in a few months and, and see how the yeah. recession is playing out. agree. Retail is not dead. Um, That's right. Good luck with the new kid. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me, man. Take it easy. All right. Take care. Later.